This is the word of the Lord and good news for us. Paul says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling or over disputable matters. Once one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but for another whose faith is weak, he eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything mustn't treat with contempt the one who does not eat everything. And the one who does not eat everything can't judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. Then we, goes, we uh, look down at verse, or chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the insults of those who insult you, talking about his father, have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you uh, for your grace to us. We thank you that you are a strong God who still loves weak people. We thank you that you are a God who will leave the 99 to go and find the one straggler, the one wanderer. Jesus, we thank you that your eyes uh, are on us when we feel we can't keep pace uh, with your church or can't keep pace with our friends. And uh, Lord, we pray that even tonight you would meet us where we are. Show us that you are this kind of God, that we might love you and see you more as you are and worship you. Uh, we ask it in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So when I was in high school, uh, I ran and I ran and I ran and I ran. Uh, and the reason I ran in high school is because I was a part of the cross-country team. And every afternoon in the fall, me and about 20 other guys, uh, and there was a separate group of girls who would go out, we would go run about 10 miles Monday through Friday. And then on Saturdays, we would meet together at these cross-country meets, and uh, if any of you have ever run distance or run cross-country, you know that the races are about uh, three and a half miles, 3.2 miles. And on my cross-country team, we had a pretty wide spectrum of talent or ability. We had, uh, while I was running those three years, we had several of the state champion uh, runners, some of the fastest guys in the state were on the team. Uh, and we also had guys who were weaker runners than that. Um, I was one of those. Uh, and so our, our state championship guys would run uh, sub-five-minute miles for three-and-a-half miles, and the rest of the team would run six-minute miles. And um, that doesn't seem like a big difference, but it's a really big difference uh, when you're running long, long distance. And so there was a big gap of performance on this team. And our coach, uh, Coach Hines, would always tell us before we go out and run, like, men, this is a team sport. And we had all those, those cheesy little shirts, a lot of you probably have, that says there's no I in team, and 
people would come cheer for the team at our Saturday meets, and uh, we would have awards ceremonies and dinners. And something that's weird about cross country is you actually you score you're scored as a group. <clears throat> it's not something where a bunch of people just go out and run and then they see who wins the race. You, your teammates and you, uh, if there's a certain number of people that cross the line in the first heat, you get points for that. They add it up, and the team with the most points wins. And so it was drilled into our heads that this is a team sport. But, uh, again, if you've ever run distance, those 19 minutes were some of the loneliest, most painful, quietest minutes of my life. And uh, I looked around me, and I saw people wearing the same uniform I had, and I knew I was a part of the same team with them, but it felt nothing like a team sport at all. Uh, and to make things um, a little bit harder, um, because of the, the talent gap on our team, nobody stuck together, even at the beginning of the race, which is kind of mayhem. Everybody's pushing out of there to try to get a spot and to hold on to it uh, for the next few miles. And so my observation of my cross-country team was this is a bunch of individuals running their own race at their own pace for their own record. A lot of record chasers. And they were setting records, too. But a bunch of guys running their own race at their own pace, setting their own records, getting their own medals. Okay, so here's what one of these practices would look like. I told you Monday through Friday we'd run about 10 miles. We would all stretch together. We would set out together on our course. And the, the stronger runners, there's two or three of them, they would always just take off. And they would leave kind of the rest of the big pack behind. And in my three years running, I never really got to know those guys. Never really benefited from their technique or their talent. Um, never, none of us ever really received any encouragement or, hey, dude, keep your head up. Let's keep pushing or let's kind of raise the pace here. And the reason why is they were kind of off in the dust and the rest of us were back there. And so it kind of created a little bit of this culture of resentment between these, these two separate teams developed. There was the state champ guys and then there was the rest of us. Now the girls cross country team uh, was very different. Um, the girls team, uh, some of their strongest runners, uh, when they would go out for their runs, they would kind of, yeah, they would set a pace for the pack that was just challenging enough, just biting enough, that it drew the people in the back. They had to push themselves to keep up with the group. But it was doable. Uh, and, the, and the girls at the front would regularly kind of float back to the back of the pack, and they'd just talk to these girls as they're running with them, talking about their breathing pace, talking about their stride, talking about posture, just talking to them. Uh, and then they would push a little bit more so the girls in the back would, would learn to push into the pain a little bit more and run faster. And so the, the difference between the guys' team and the girls' team was how the stronger runners responded to the weaker runners. And that dynamic made all the difference in how the teams succeeded. Because remember, having three state champ guys on your team doesn't mean much if your team's being scored as a group. And so the whole team suffered because of that. And for the girls, the whole team succeeded because of that. So here's where I think this connects to the passage we just read. Paul is saying, I think he has this in his mind when he's talking, Christianity, in a sense, is a team sport. It's not something that you can succeed or the body can succeed when we kind of stronger brothers, stronger sisters, stronger runners break off the pack uh, because they have the ability to, they have the strength to or the maturity to, and they leave the rest behind while the others kind of try to keep up, run out of breath, stop. Um, but Christianity or the Christian life, in a sense, 
is a, a team sport. Now, the metaphor carries even further because like that cross-country team, the Christian life, Paul even uses this metaphor all the time. It's like a race, right? He talks about endurance, about perseverance, about pressing on to win the prize. Uh, and, and the other ways that it's like a race is oftentimes if you grew up in the church or you're a Christian, I'm not taking that for granted for all of you. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But if you've grown up in the church, perhaps you have felt like, I have, I've kind of am on the same team with these other people. We kind of wear the same uniform. But this feels like a lonely, quiet, painful journey. I feel like I'm by myself, surrounded by people everybody tells me are on my team, part of this same journey together. But when I'm, on, when I'm out on the race, on the journey, I just feel alone. You might be the one who feels like the straggler stuck in the back of the pack, and you're just watching people. You can barely see them anymore. They're so far ahead of you. You're like, how am I ever supposed to get to that place? How am I ever supposed to grow or mature? Uh, or you might be maybe one of the stronger runners in the front, and maybe you have a humble attitude about it, maybe you don't. Maybe you've forgotten about the, the back of the pack or the middle of the pack. Um, but, the, but the metaphor carries pretty far here. And the dynamics, just like on my uh, high school cross-country team, are there as well, and for this reason. And this is hard for Westerners to hear. We're schooled in everybody is equal, which means we take to mean everybody's the same. But all of us know that's not true. Um, all of us know you might study more than the next guy or the next girl for a test, and they get a much better grade than you do. Um, and there's some realities in our lives and in our past that bring this right in front of our faces. Some of you might have, uh, maybe you grew up in a Christian house. You grew up in the church. Uh, you might know more about the gospel, about the Bible than other people. Maybe there's been people in your life that have poured themselves into you. Uh, and you have, you've grown, you've matured. Um, you've grown in grace over the years. Uh, some of you have experienced more, suffered more, maybe read more. And you're just at a little bit different place. The hard part is for those of us who are on the other end of that too, right? Perhaps, and this is a great thing, perhaps, perhaps Jesus is a new thing, a new person in your life, or Christianity is a new dynamic and power in your life. Uh, and this is all new to you. You didn't grow up on this stuff. You're, you're trying to piece these dots, these, uh, you're trying to put the dots together and figure out how does this, how does this whole year we've been talking about Jesus making everything new again. What does that really mean? How far into my life does that apply? Uh, and things might not make very much sense uh, at the time. And so you might be a person, um, as kind of this passage draws out, you might be a person that you don't know which things are major in the Christian life and which things are minor. Like which, which things are a really big deal and what things kind of aren't that big of a deal that you don't necessarily have to worry about uh, as much as we do. And so, here's what happens, and here's kind of what sets up Paul for even saying this kind of stuff. These gaps between, in this room, let's keep it practical, in this room, the gaps between the stronger of you and the weaker of you has the potential to do one of two things. Uh, that dynamic, this gap, can either slide us towards that girls cross-country team, where that gap is actually something that triggers people into action. The strong girls come back to the weak girls, encourage, they rub off on them, and the whole group grows. 
or that dynamic, this gap between different maturity levels, different, different knowledge of the scripture, different experiences and sufferings and trials, that can also pull us, this group, you and me, towards a place like the guys team, where it's kind of a bunch of tribes, a bunch of uh, kind of cluster with the people who are running at the same pace with us, and there's not much interaction with people at different places. Now, I've told you before, the Bible is so beautifully realistic that it never lets us pretend or have pretty talk. And it never really, it talks a lot about the way things should be, but when it comes to us and describing the way things are for us, I just love how honest it is. Paul, obviously, which direction do you think Paul presumes we're bound to slide default towards the girls team where we're all kind of encouraging each other and saying, hey, or towards this team where we kind of, we're so lost in our own pain and our own quietness and our own race and our own rewards that we forget everybody else. Paul's, Paul assumes that uh, inertia is going to be pulling us and our own sin is going to be pulling us towards us being like my high school guys team. Uh, and uh, like I said, if you're honest about yourself, then you'll see yourself on the pages of the Bible here. Okay, so let's turn our attention to the passage real quick. And uh, let, me do, let me ask this question first. What does it mean when Paul talks in verse, four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14? What does it mean when he says, except the one whose faith is weak? What does he mean about the weak-faithed Christian? Definitely they're a Christian. He's not talking about someone who's uh, kind of not alive or not connected to Jesus. But you can kind of think about it this way. Have you ever, um, you ever marinated meat to like put on the grill or in the oven or something? Perhaps sometimes you haven't had time to kind of do it the right way, so you kind of put this meat in a marinade for about 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Um, and you put it on the grill, and the outside of the meat does taste like the marinade, and it's really great, right? But the inside is just kind of this big old hunk of, like, blandness. And so you get a little bit of that flavor. Um, or you do it the right way where you marinate the stuff for, like, a day or two days, and it gets good because the marinade has time to just penetrate all the way in there. And when you cut that stuff, the whole piece tastes awesome, right? I think when Paul talks about weak faith Christians, he's absolutely talking about Christians. Uh, he, what he's talking about is people, for one of the reasons I mentioned earlier, maybe not much time being a Christian, not much exposure to teaching of the Bible, not much encouragement. For whatever reason... The flavor of the gospel, the implications of what Jesus is doing haven't penetrated all the way inside your thinking, your feeling yet. And so there's areas or issues in your life that the gospel kind of hasn't yet brought much influence to that area. This will make sense in a second. We're about to get super practical. Uh, and the strong Christians that he talks about, the strong ones, would be those who... Uh, have been in that marinade long enough, or for whatever reason, suffering sometimes kind of pushes that marinade in, or trials or experiences. For whatever reason, the stronger among us are perhaps people where that the gospel, the flavor of the gospel has reached your core. Literally everything you think about is flavored by Jesus and what he's doing in your life and in the world. It makes a difference. Um, that's the difference, I think, in what it means with weak and with faith. The stronger Christians realize their freedom from the do's and the don'ts. 
of kind of past lifestyles. And maybe the weaker Christians are a little bit more hung up on the do's or the don'ts. Is it right to do this? Wrong to do this? Can I go see this? Go see that? That's what Paul's talking about. Now, in his context, it's a little bit weird. All right? We have, we're all crazy about diet stuff, too, but not for the same reasons. Um, weird calorie counting. Paul and them, not necessarily. Uh, this, was, this was kind of the leftovers of the way a lot of these people were raised in Judaism. Um, and Greek religion, too, had all these kind of foods or meats that were sacrificed <coughs> to gods. And then they're like, hey, we've already sacrificed it to the god. Let's give it, sell it to the butcher for a little extra money. So these like sacrifices would wind up in the supermarket. And some of these weaker Christians, their consciences were like torn. They're like, I can't, how, how could I ever eat something that was sacrificed to Zeus? How could, how could anybody who calls himself a Christian like ingest something so contaminated and wicked? Uh, and, and other Christians are like, uh, that God that he sacrificed to doesn't exist. Why does this matter? Um, of course we can eat. It's probably cheaper, too, because it's been out for a few days. So there's these there's little conversations coming up that don't make much sense to us, but here's the point and kind of the pivot where we can see how this does reach us. Um, the weaker Christians, the less marinated, less penetrated in a sense, uh, were, they saw this minor issue of eating and, and eating and drinking as a major issue. Paul says later on in verse 7, I didn't include it in, this, in, the, in your bulletin, but he says, hey, the kingdom of God is so much bigger than, that, than eating and drinking. He says the kingdom of God is about the love and the peace and the justice of the spirit of Jesus kind of infiltrating and invading your life and in the world. It's about so much bigger than these little quibbles about whether the meat is good or not. Um, and so that's kind of what the weak Christians are talking about, but... How does this pop up today? What are some of these issues? There's a, this is, there's a ton of them, and it's probably different for each of you and for me. Because um, for something to kind of fit in the category of what Paul's talking about, it has to be this. It's something that you consider deadly serious, and other people dismiss as silly. So for you, it's a, it's a non-negotiable. Every Christian has to do this. Or, or I can't imagine how someone could be a Christian if they did this thing. And you say that, but other people are like, what? That's not true. It's silly to them, serious to you. Um, or it's a non-negotiable to you and to other people. They don't get what you're saying. And it's, so it's anything that you're convinced of while other people are not convinced of it. Or they're convinced of the opposite. Here's a few examples. Political views. This is always hot. Especially hot lately. Um, we've talked about this the past few weeks. Kind of how we respond when stuff pops into your Facebook feed that drives you crazy. Um, God says a lot about how the gospel of Jesus should be influencing and affecting your life as a citizen. We talked about it two weeks ago with Romans 13 a little bit. Uh, the fact that Jesus is reconciling everything, the fact that he's making everything new, the fact that he is king and that he will get his way, that should infiltrate, it should penetrate the piece of our lives as the voting piece, the political part. But God never says to be my people, to be a Christian, you have to vote Democrat or Republican or Independent. He never requires that. He leaves it to the freedom of your conscience. He reminds you very faithfully 
that we all make our decisions right before his eyes. This is why Paul talks about uh, obeying our conscience. This is why he talks about we stand or fall before the Lord. Not, we don't, we're not accountable to each other in that sense, but we make our decisions before God. And so you'll have some perhaps weaker Christians who might find themselves doing what Paul says in verse 3. Passing judgment on the stronger Christians who know they're free to vote the way their conscience leads them. So long as it doesn't mean disobeying God. The weak Christians might look at the free ones, the strong ones, and say, I don't know how anybody could be a Christian and vote for that person. Or vote for that policy. And you begin to hate and judge those Christians and distance yourself we form little clubs or the conservative Christian movement or we're the progressive Christian movement or whatever it is. And we begin to despise each other. And maybe the stronger Christians, Paul also says in verse 3, look back at the weaker ones and say, how are you that narrow-minded and simple-minded? Don't you know that Jesus died on the cross to free us from all this little quibbling? Oh, we're free to make decisions like that. And it's obvious to see how chaos comes into the community. See how it separates the stronger from the weaker? Nobody knows each other. They resent each other, despise each other. Another big one is uh, worship style. You will have people ready to die on the hill of what style of singing in a church or a campus ministry is the right one that God's kind of told us. This is the only way to worship me. Again... Uh, God has said a lot about how he wants us to worship him. He hasn't just left it all up to us. But he's also left a lot of liberty for his church to kind of raise its voice and sing to him. And so you might have some who would say, either you can't be a Christian, you can't be a mature Christian. I don't get it. How do you sing that contemporary Christian stuff on the radio? It's nothing. And you might have some over there who look back and be like, how are you that toxic and that simplistic that there's no room for you for this other stuff? And again, discord comes. Weakness and strength comes out and people begin to throw grenades at each other because we made something that is relatively, I'm not saying it's an unimportant issue. RUF obviously has thought about this a lot with the, with the way that we sing. But we don't throw grenades at other ministries and say they're illegitimate because they don't sing hymns like we do. We have reasons we do. But we don't want to be in a place where we are uh, abusing uh, our brothers and sisters or judging or despising. And we don't want them to be doing that to us. There's a lot of other stuff we could talk a lot about. Drinking, when you're of age, is it right or wrong to drink? Which kind of people would it be right or wrong to not drink around? Those questions come up. Little tiny things like tattoos. Have you ever heard somebody get all worked up about that? There's reasons they do. They believe it. And it can lead to really kind of violent conversations or confrontations, depending on where you are with that. But, it, but again, it's a relatively minor thing that when we make it major, it separates the weak from the strong, those who know they're free, and those who are still clinging to the do's and the don'ts. Birth control, when you get married, is it right or wrong? Should Christians go to psychiatrists and psychologists, or only their pastors? is another one. How about homeschool or public school? Where does Jesus want you to go to school? How, what method of dating do you follow? Which version of the Bible is the one that dropped out of heaven and is from Jesus himself? It, 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 uh, which shows on Netflix are appropriate for you to be watching and which ones are not helpful for you to be watching? 
These are all things that the Bible has certainly said a lot about them, but it hasn't, God hasn't dropped 10,000 statutes to say you have to do this, 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 and this, and you can't do that, that, and that, and that. He has left it to his spirit to move your conscience. He's left it to the encouragement of the scriptures uh, to guide you. Um, when we kind of cling to these and make our opinions or our cultural preferences or the way that we were raised, the way it has to be, um, discord breaks out. And so, uh, the way that the strong look at the weak is the strong feels sophisticated. I thought this through. I know I'm right. And they, here's the thing. Paul says the stronger Christians, in this instance at least, are correct. Paul says the weaker Christians are wrong. He says they need to grow. They do need to grow in understanding of the scriptures. These people who say, you can't eat that, you can't eat that. Um, he acknowledges that, that some people are right and some are wrong, but he also says the way that you deal with the difference of opinion, the way that you deal with your differences, that is a make or break thing. If this is a team, that's what separates the pack and leads to tribalism. That's what breaks us apart from one another. And so the solution to this is kind of crazy if you've been following what we're talking about so far. Paul says in the passage a few times, uh, in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, he says, we who are strong. So Paul's he's putting his cards on the table. He's saying, hey, look, um, I know that these regulations about which meat you can and can't eat uh, don't apply. Um across the board for anybody anymore. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So here's Paul who considers himself right. He's on the right side of this. He's on the stronger side. But where does he aim all of his attention in this passage? You would think he'd be saying, hey, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm stronger. I'm more mature than you. I've thought this through better. You would think that he would turn his guns on the weaklings and say, Wake up! Are you serious? Is this, you really think this is what Jesus died and was raised up for and reigning for now is questions about the butcher shop. But he doesn't do that. He spends almost all of his time, all of his attention is aimed at the strong ones, himself, the mature ones in the crowd. That's who he's talking to. And he's saying it is us, the mature ones, that have an obligation to bear patiently with the weak. It's to the stronger that he says, don't quarrel over opinions. Don't bicker over opinions with the weaker ones. It's not helpful. It's to the stronger, the more mature, the more thoughtful that he says, never ever put a, a stumbling block or trip the weaker runners, the weaker brothers and sisters. He says, if you do, you're no longer walking in love. You're walking in self-pleasure. You're walking in pleasing yourself. You're not considering your brothers and sisters. You've taken off in the front of the pack and you've left them all behind. Paul says that's not love. And so you put all this together and you say, what's the final verdict? Here it is. The weak among us, what, what the weak among us haven't seen is how the gospel or Jesus' death and resurrection penetrates into all the little nooks and crannies of your life. Okay? But for the strong ones in the room... We haven't seen how the death and resurrection of Jesus changes how we deal with our weak brothers and sisters. It changes both. 
And so Paul is saying to the weaklings, yes, you're weak. And he's saying to the strong ones, you're weak too. We all need strength. We all need help. Which leads us to the second and the last point, which was this. The way you think God deals with your weakness is the way you are going to deal with the weak ones around you. The way you think God, in a sense, coaches you or or meets you in your weakness and what he does in response to it, that will find is how you tend to deal with other people's weakness. Have you ever dug deep enough into a person's life or asked enough questions to bitter, cold, angry people, you will find out that their God is bitter, cold, angry, and hateful. He is impatient, and he has no room for screw-ups. And so... They're not necessarily thinking about that. They're not saying, okay, my God, is this way I'm going to go or this way? It's so organic, so fluid, so subconscious. That's just the way they act. Um, The converse is true as well. Let me tell you a couple stories before we end to make sense of this. The way Coach Hines, the guy's coach, led us, and the way Coach Ravenscraft, the girl's coach, led the girl's team. So Coach Hines... This is how he coached our guys' team. We would go out for our 10-mile runs five days a week, and he had this tiny little Toyota Corolla, and it had a little itty-bitty four-cylinder engine, and we would be out running through the neighborhoods, and we would hear this which was not a bee, it was his car. <laughs> and uh, he would come up, and we would be running along the side of the road, and he would, he would get about five feet in front of us and start honking his horn. Me, 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 me. One of the tiny little horns that never makes you look good. And uh, he would start yelling out of his window, Hey, Coppage, get up to my bumper. Stop lagging. Or whoever else. It wasn't necessarily me. He'd say, get up to the front. And he would keep pushing his car a little faster as you got up closer to his bumper. I can't remember a time Coach Hines ever ran with us, sweated with us, stretched with us, lifted with us. Uh, And uh, the weaker runners were invisible. We never got coached. Uh, the three guys who were winning the state, champions, cha- state championships, they had a coach. They had technique. They learned breathing pacing. They learned stride. They learned posture. Cramps didn't come to them as fast as they came to us because they had pointers on it. Coach Ravenscroft, on the other hand, every day the girls ran. He was down on the track with them after school, stretching. And then he was with them running. He sweated with them. He ran with them. And while he was running, the way those girls learned to kind of float back to the back and instruct and help and teach the girls in the back is they saw him doing it. So he would kind of float back through the whole pack and talk to the girls and just be there with them, meet them where they were, and coach them forward. Pick up the pace a little by little so it was doable for them, piece by piece. Uh, Every day they ran, he ran. Okay, so you have two coaches, two different styles, and I've already told you the way they coached spread into the team, and it affected all of us. It's contagious. One coach is in his car, driving along, yelling at us from ahead of us. Get up here! Why aren't you here yet? Stop lagging, you're lazy. And he never sweated with us, he never ran with us, he didn't know what it was like for us. The other coach was with his people, from start to finish. He knew what he was asking of them because he was doing it too. And it seemed like he was always right where you were 
If you were in the front, he was there. If you were in the back, he was there. If you were in the middle, he was there. And he was pushing gently but firmly. Those two coaches, the way, their styles trickled down into everybody else on the team. So my question to you is this. And it's a serious question, and I hope it lingers in your mind. What does God do when he sees your weakness? What does God do when he sees your slow pace? What does he do when he sees you lagging? What does he do when he sees you not wrapping your head around the gospel the way you should be, the way you've been taught to? What's his response? I bet if we uh, ask you to, I'm not going to do this, I bet if I ask you to close your eyes and stand up, if your God, your functional God is the God in the little car, the little annoying car with the little annoying horn, who's always just out of your reach, in front of you, ridiculing you, yelling at you, why aren't you up here? Why are you running so slow? That is toxic, and it means the way you deal with your weaker brothers and sisters is toxic as well because you will replicate what you've received. I have good news for you if you're a Christian. I have better news for you even if you don't know where you are with Jesus or you know you're not with him. The God of the Bible is a God who bears patiently with the failings of the weak. He's a God of the Bible who raises up apostles and prophets and teachers to tell his people, run slower so that the ones in the back catch up. Circle back around. Meet them where they are. If it means swallowing your political views so you don't crush a weaker brother or sister, then you don't talk about it that night. If it means one of your roommates has a problem with drinking but your other three love it, it means perhaps you are free in Jesus not to drink so that you don't destroy their conscience. It's all these implications. Jesus is the one, the shepherd, who leaves the 99 strong sheep who are following to go find the one who left. Isaiah promises the Messiah is one who will not break a bruised reed and one who will not quench a smoldering wick. You ever seen a candle when the fires went around? It's just a little limber. God is so gentle and so careful that that wick doesn't burn out. The reed doesn't break. Which God are you following? Which God are you running for? <laughs> this is a God who Paul says at the end of this passage has welcomed the weak. Verse, chapter 14, verse 3. Do not reject your brother or sister who's weaker because God, the living God, has welcomed her or welcomed him, accepted him, accepted her. He upholds the weak one. And this is where it gets best, and this is where Paul ends and where we end. He says in the beginning of chapter 15, what does God do when he sees not just your weakness? What does he do when he sees you at your worst, in your guilt, in your shame, in your death, in your misery? He says Christ did not please himself. He left the front he came back and met you where you were, which is in death, which is in bondage, which is in slavery, which is in misery. And he coached you out of there. He pulled you out of there with his life, with his power, with his resources, 
the way Coach Ravenscroft used all of his resources and all of his love to bring those girls in the back to the front, and the whole team prospered. Paul gets the last word. In verse 15, 5 and 6, he says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you, my friends, the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had towards you. He says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. This will bring praise to God. Let's pray that he would help us do these very things. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the strong one who is able to carry the weak, but you're not so strong that you forget about the weak. We pray that wherever we are in that pack, wherever we are on the team, we would see you coming to meet us where we are. That we would respond well to your gracious coaching. Uh, that we would push into this race, as Paul calls us to, to run with endurance because the God of endurance has welcomed us and is bringing us, out of, uh, bringing us to newness. Lord Jesus, do this for your own name's sake and for your own pleasure. We ask it in your name.